Well done, Scotland. I tell you what, it's, it's, it's not such of a problem for me to, you know, sort of uh, say well done to Scotland as it is to England when you beat us. <laughs> Are we any Italians here this morning? Any Italians here? No? I'm just going to say I'll be praying for you this afternoon. <laughs> okay. Good to see you. Welcome. Well, this is uh, week three in our present uh, series. We are church. And uh, as I said a couple of weeks ago, the church is uh, not where we go. The church is who we are. Can you just move that on, guys, please? Thank you. We don't go to church. We are the church. And uh, this particular teaching series is both discovery and declaration. And um, what we're going to be doing is discovering together from the pages of the New Testament what the New Testament says about church. And um, thank you, Tim. It just needs to go on the computer. That needs to go on the computer. That does help, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd like you to think that I'm a professional up here, you know, <laughs> that I've done this before. Thank you. As I was saying, this, uh, this present uh, series is um, both discovery, we will be discovering together from the New Testament what the New Testament has to say about church, and also it would be a, a declaration that we are declaring what our key values are as Tamworth Elim Church. So we're week three. Week one, we looked at the subject of we are a Jesus-centered church. Last week, Dan gave a great talk on we are a loving church. And this week, our focus is on we are a servant-hearted church. And Simon is going to come and read to us now from Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Thank you. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's lovely, thank you. You see, the wisdom of our world says that to become great, you need to push yourself to the top, that you need to assert yourself more, and you need to promote yourself. And even if that requires you stepping on others in order to climb the ladder of success, then that is what you must do. And that is the way of the world. But in our reading this morning, in Mark chapter 10, we read that... The disciples, two of the disciples, James and John, also uh, embraced some worldly wisdom there. 
And they came up to Jesus and they asked Jesus if he would allow them one day when he came into his kingdom, allow them to sit one at his right hand and one at his left hand in his kingdom. And uh, as you can imagine, that irritated uh, the other ten disciples. In fact, we are told in the reading there that they were indignant, outraged, incensed, miffed. We're not told um, whether it was because... Uh, they thought that James and John were self-serving and unspiritual, or simply whether James and John got in there before they did. We're not told that. But in verse uh, 42, we read, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Uh, Jesus was acknowledging that uh, certain people live by such standards that they lord it over others and that for them greatness is getting to the top. But Jesus said to his disciples and says to us today, not so with you. That we are called to live by different standards. We're called to live by different values in this world. And then Jesus says, instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first, must be a slave of all. And then Jesus told them something that they probably didn't make that much sense of at that moment, but they did a couple of years later in verse 45 there, when Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that was obviously a reference to the cross. And uh, a ransom is a price that was paid to release a slave. And Jesus paid a ransom to release us from the slavery of sin and death. You see, with God's kingdom, it's the upside-down kingdom. And the kingdom values are the very opposite of the values of this world. And, to be, and the greatest that we can ever become in God's kingdom is a servant. Now, you've probably heard me say that once or twice or 40 or 50 times before over the years. And the wonderful thing about you as a church family that is something that you have embraced and I personally am thrilled and privileged to share my life with such a servant-hearted group of people here so thank you thank you for displaying the characteristics of God and thank you so much for embracing the values of his kingdom you know, it's, it, it's, it's amazing what I see in the way that you serve. And thank you so much for that. I've known churches in the past where some people within those churches have struggled for preeminence within the church, or for status, or for just to show off their talents or to lord it over others. But I thank God, and I can sincerely say this, that that is not something that I've experienced within this church in 25 years. John tells us in 3 John 9 of a church where there was a man by the name of Diotrephes. And Diotrephes, and I love the way that this puts very um, eloquently in the King James Version of the Bible, where it says, Diotrephes, who loveth to have preeminence. How, how lovely is that as a statement? In the um, message it translated, he loves being in charge. So what they were talking about here was a guy who seemed to crave the limelight. And uh, it was recognized by John and by the church 
This guy likes to push himself up there. He likes to be first. He likes to be seen in the limelight. He's craving that kind of attention. How different it was with the Apostle Paul, the amazing Apostle Paul, who was a most brilliant scholar, a missionary who took the gospel from the, uh, the, the, the promised land into the ancient Mediterranean world. And he refers to himself as so often a servant, like in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Before he was anything else, he was a servant. He was a servant about his master's business. And that's us too. If you're a Christian, that is your highest calling, to be a servant in the master's kingdom and to be about his business. Isn't that wonderful? That we are servants together. And why do we serve? We serve because he has served us so well, because he has laid down his life for us. He has given us so much. And we can never pay him back for the things which he has done for us. But what we can do is to serve him with all that we have and all that we are. Going back to the uh, story of James and John, uh, Jesus' rebuke was not lost on them because probably about 50 or 60 years later, John was now an old man. And he reflects on those days when he walked with Jesus for those three years. And he reflects upon those times and he writes his gospel. And the gospels at that time of Matthew, Mark and Luke, they were already in circulation and their writings in many respects were quite similar. But John wrote a completely different story. John brings more insights into the life and ministry of Jesus. And also includes some stories in his gospel that weren't included in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Such as what happened on the night when Jesus was betrayed by Judas. John, the one who initially wanted to sit on the right hand of Jesus when Jesus came into his kingdom tells us that the disciples met with Jesus for the Passover meal, which was the biggest religious feast of the year. Now let's pick up the story there. On that night when Jesus was betrayed in John chapter 13. <clears throat> Verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. What was he like? You've got, you've got to love this guy, Peter, haven't you? You really have. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. 
When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I, will, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You see, these disciples, I think that they'd been at this point on previous occasions, but they had still not learned the lesson. They were still bickering amongst themselves. They were still jockeying for position. And just hours before the Lord was taken from them and crucified, and just picture the scene there, 12 disciples in the upper room having dinner served, yet not one of them was prepared to wash the dirty feet of the other disciples. Now that might sound a bit of a strange custom. It may be that you're not used to reading the Bible or used to these strange ancient Middle Eastern customs. Well, it was a necessity. In Jerusalem, many of the streets were unpaved in those days. And people wore open sandals. So in the dry season, they would get dusty feet. In the wet season, they would have muddy feet. And most homes had a servant or a slave at the door to wash the feet of guests. It was a menial job. And also in those days, they didn't sit around a table with feet neatly tucked under, but they laid on their side and they ate food lying down. And if you were in that position, you knew full well that the guy next to you had dirty feet. Leonardo da Vinci's um, famous painting of the Last Supper, of them all sat around the table sitting on chairs, I'm afraid isn't anywhere near the truth. Da Vinci was there looking at that story through Renaissance eyes. And here there were the disciples, since there was competition among them, no one wanted to give way to others. They wanted to elevate themselves, not lower themselves. They wanted to promote themselves. They wanted greatness, not servanthood. But then Jesus, their master and Lord, did the unthinkable. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' dirty feet, and then dried them with a towel. Now that passage teaches us essentially three things. <coughs> Firstly, a servant serves out of his or her security in Christ. Look at these verses, verse 3 and 4. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. There is one little word which is so easy to miss there. It is the word, so. That John links Jesus washing the disciples' feet with the things that Jesus knew about himself. That is, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, he washed their feet. You see, I would argue that the only person who is <coughs> secure in his or her identity can afford to take the role of a servant. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus was the Son of God. The one who had come from heaven was going back there. 
He knew that he could not be reduced or diminished in any way by this menial, humbling task of washing the disciples' feet. And therefore, he served them out of a sense of his own standing and security. Now, I think that's very relevant for us today. In the world where we live, people crave to be viewed in high esteem by others. We all want other people to think well of us. We want to be viewed as successful, going up in the world. And so often we project an image through the clothes that we wear, through the cars that we drive, or through even social media. And very often our self-image is driven by our own insecurities. <coughs> Let me give you an example of this. 37 years ago, I started working in a, um, a local government department. It was a job. It wasn't a very good job. But it was the only job I could get at the time. It was an office junior. And it was such a boring, mundane job. It involved lots and lots of photocopying, which I learned to hate. And it also involved actually making the teas and the coffees for all of the other staff three times a day. And I remember thinking back then, looking at myself, well, what would, what would some of my friends say, those who have decent jobs, what would they say about me in this poxy little job that I was in and hated every second of it? I'd be the laughing stock. I despised it. I despised being the lowly tea maker. And it hurt my pride. I had a desire to be someone who was not doing that. <laughs> now looking back at that, you know, I can, I can smile at it. Because I now recognize that these thoughts that I had at the time were really driven by my own insecurities at the time. But if, if, for example, I had not been the office junior, if I'd been the office manager or the director of the department and decided, just as a free will gesture, to serve my staff cups of tea every now and again, I am sure I would not have thought the same way about that. I imagine that I would have been secure enough in my position, in my sense of self-worth, to serve others. Now, let's just translate that illustration into the spiritual when we know who we are in Christ, that we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings, that we are His beloved family, that we are adopted into His family for all of, all of eternity, that we are heirs of God and that we are joint heirs with Christ, and that God has a special interest in our lives, and He loves us to bits, and He has a great plan and purpose for us in this world. When we know who we are in Christ, then our serving others takes on a new appearance. You see, the director of the department making tea for his staff would have had nothing to prove. He's relaxed. The whole world might look on. He's not bothered. He knows who he is. And when we understand who we are in Christ, that we are his dearly loved children, we will serve him out of a sense of security. That no job will ever be too low for us. We have nothing to prove. Yeah? Okay. The second thing that we see here is that the Christian serves because of the example of Christ. In verse 14, 
we read, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash. Now, if we had to guess what was coming next, I wonder if the majority would have said, Now that I have washed your feet, you should also wash my feet. But that would not have been difficult because I'm sure any one of us would have lined up to have done that for Jesus. That would have been an honor. That would have been a privilege. None of us would have had a problem with that. But what Jesus says is not wash my feet, is wash one another's feet. And you see, that's the heart of being a servant of Jesus. It is washing one another's feet, so to speak. We're all aware of that great passage in Matthew chapter 25. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger, invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You see, with incredible humility, Jesus washed the feet of his proud-hearted, competitive, pompous disciples those men whose hearts were full of pride. He washed the feet of a man who was soon to deny him. And more amazingly than that, he washed the feet of a man who was soon to betray him, Judas. And Jesus knew that Judas was a traitor from the beginning. Some years later, the Apostle Paul, he writes a letter to the church at Philippi. And he encourages there the Christians to... Consider others better than themselves and to love one another and to look out of, for the interests of other people before they're looking out for their own interests. And the reason that he wrote this was there seems to be some relationship problems in the church of Philippi. There were two ladies. One was called Euodia and the other was Syntyche. And they seemed to be sort of warring and had major relationship problems. And Paul writes into that situation... And he says these words. Just imagine that. Your name's going down in Holy Scripture for all of eternity just because you've fallen out with your friend in church who is no longer your friend in church. Yeah? Wow. And that's what Jesus says. <laughs> Paul says when he writes to them. And then he goes on to say this in the same, same passage. He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he explains what Christ's attitude was. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And he found, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Lord Jesus submitted himself to being human, limited himself to the confines of a human body. He let go willingly of all that was his in heaven. Not his deity, because he was as much God when he walked this earth as he was in heaven. But he let go of all the outward trappings, you could say, the splendor, the glory of heaven itself. Let me put it this way to you. First of all, he gave up his riches. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. He gave up everything. And we can see this in the gospel accounts. 
that he needed to borrow a place for his birth and a house to sleep in and a boat to preach from and an animal to ride upon and a coin for an illustration and a room for the Last Supper and a tomb to be buried in. He gave up his heavenly glory in the great prayer in John chapter 17 verses 4 and 5. Jesus prayed, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world began. Jesus, the one before whom all angels covered their faces. Jesus, the object of heaven's adoration, descended into a realm where he was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted by grief, as the prophet Isaiah said. What else did Jesus give up? He gave up the independent exercise of authority. And Jesus, on his time in, in his time on earth, he was dependent upon the Spirit's leading and empowering. He said, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, long before Jesus washed the, the disciples' feet, he took on that role of a servant by leaving heaven and coming into this world. And Paul writes, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You see, that's what we're talking about this morning. It's essentially an attitude of heart. Did you know it's possible to do servant kind of jobs and tasks and still have the wrong attitude of heart? It's possible to do that. Whether it be putting out chairs or washing the dishes or putting out the bins or cleaning the toilets or brushing up the leaves or whatever menial job there may be. We need to make sure that we're not doing those things with the wrong attitude of heart. That we're not doing so with a, a martyr complex. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well, if I didn't do this job, no one else would consider doing it. Woe is me. No one else considers lifting a finger to help. I think I'll go up the garden and eat some worms. You know, that kind of mentality. That is not right. You see, what we are talking about, servant-heartedness, is an attitude of heart. It's an attitude of heart. It's not just necessarily seen in the jobs that we do or don't do. But it's the heart which is behind them. Ruth Holmes Kalkin writes a poem, I Wonder. You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you in the women's club. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew? Good question. And a Christian serves to experience the blessing of God. Let me ask you a question. Do you want God to bless you? Oh, it's four of you. It's great. <laughs> I know you're such a shy lot, so I'll take that as probably most of you. Do you want God to bless you? Yes, of course you do. But what do we mean by that? When we say, I want God to bless me. Because it's one of those kind of vague concepts, isn't it? You know, um, we all want it, but we're not that sure we know what it means. 
You know, dear Lord, bless all the missionaries in Africa. You know, what does that mean? How, do one, how does one know when God has answered that prayer? You see, I suppose when we're praying for God to bless another person, what we are saying essentially is that, God, please become more real to them. Let them know your presence. Let them know you in their lives. Let them be an instrument of your grace. And all of those kind of things we are praying, good things for that person. But how do we experience God's blessing in our lives? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 17. <coughs> when Jesus said, Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. No, it's walk your talk. I think I've told you this story before on another occasion. It's a story of a, a, a man. Many of you might have read his books. Um, he, he was a Roman Catholic priest and used to teach in Harvard University. His name is Henry Nguyen. And he was a brilliant man who, at the height of his academic career, uh, moved from Harvard University, which really is like Oxford or Cambridge in the UK, and he went to a community, the Daybreak community in Toronto, in order to take the, the demanding chores of looking after Adam, who was a young man who was considered by many people uh, an absolutely useless person. And some had said that, you know, that people like him should have even been aborted before birth. Awful, I know, it's, it, but that's what, what was said. And Henry Nguyen describes his friend this way. And let me read to, to you how he describes his friend. He says, Adam is a 25-year-old man who cannot speak, cannot dress, or undress himself, cannot walk alone, cannot eat without much help. He does not cry or laugh. Only occasionally does he make eye contact. His back is distorted. His arm and leg movements are twisted. He suffers from severe epilepsy, and despite heavy medication, sees few days without seizures. Sometimes he grows suddenly rigid, he utters a howling groan. On a few occasions, I have seen one big tear roll down his cheek. It takes me about an hour and a half to wake Adam up, give him his medication, carry him to the bath, wash him, shave him, clean his teeth, dress him, walk over to the kitchen, give him breakfast, put him in his wheelchair, and bring him to the place where he spends most of the day with therapeutic exercises. On one occasion, Henry Nguyen was rather cautiously asked by one journalist whether he felt that serving Adam in this way was the best use of his time. After all, he was a brilliant speaker. He was a writer. He was an academic. He was someone of just sheer brilliance. Could anyone else, maybe, take over these menial tasks of caring for Adam and he replied this way I'm not giving anything I'm not giving up anything it is I not Adam who gets the main benefit from our friendship and then he went on to say that the hours spent with Adam had given him such inner peace that it made most of his other tasks his, his high-minded tasks seem quite boring and superficial in contrast there's an old story of a man who came to his pastor one time and said, I don't know what's wrong with my life, but the joy that I once knew when I first became a Christian is no longer with me. 
I live a moral life. I still go to church. But how can I recover this lost radiance of my faith? And his pastor said, this is what you're to do. Go to the supermarket, buy a basket full of groceries. And then go to this address that I'll give you of a poor family that I know. Give them your gift. And then sit down and find out what they need. And spend time with them. Show that you are interested in their lives. And then before you leave, say the Lord's Prayer together. And I will guarantee you that your radiance will come back. You see, in the context of our church, it might mean serving God through one of our many community ministries. And as you serve others in Christ's name, seeking to make a difference to their lives, not focusing on yourself and on your needs, but on theirs, that you will experience something of the deep sense of joy and well-being that you experienced when you first became a Christian. You see, God's blessing is not to be sought after by going from one Christian conference to another. Christian conferences are okay. I've got nothing against them. That's fine. Or perhaps getting this person or that person to pray for you. It's not received through gaining more head knowledge. <coughs> I think that most Christians probably have enough head knowledge to, to keep them going. But God's blessing is received through serving others in his name. Again in verse 17. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I know this morning that uh, I'm speaking largely to people who have already embraced these values and these lessons. And again, as I said at the beginning, I think that you are a wonderful, wonderful uh, group of people who have such a heart and a servant heart for serving others. And I consider it a privilege to serve alongside you. But as you are doing, keep on doing. Keep serving Jesus in the way that you have. And remember the words of Jesus. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Let's pray together.